Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I'm speaking to Jennifer Graves. She's a distinguished professor and vice chancellor's fellow at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. And we're going to talk about uh, Australian dragons and some of other uh, Australia's animals and uh, her research. So, Jenny, thanks for coming. Very welcome. Nice to meet you. Yeah, if you would tell me which animals you study, and and I'll ask you about your background after that. Well, I started off uh, studying Australian marsupial mammals. That's your kangaroos and and koalas, but lots of other little animals that you probably wouldn't recognize as marsupials as as well. Something like 26 of them. But I've been slipping down the evolutionary pole lately, and I've worked with birds, particularly Australia's emu, which is an answer to the ostrich. And now I work on lizards. And lizards are, are particularly fascinating because they're very flexible about the way they do sex. What do you mean, the way they engage in insects, or what do you mean what's interesting about them? Well, a lot of my work is about how an animal decides to be either male or female, and it turns out Mm. that that reptiles are very flexible about the way they make this decision. You can do it either by genes on chromosomes or often by temperature in which the eggs are being incubated. So the particular lizard that we study does both. And that gives us an opportunity to look at how this whole system works. Oh, okay. So what do they do? The, uh, what is the mating like? What is the curation of the eggs? But I forget what they would call it. I guess just caring for the eggs. Is it, what's the name for it? Incubation. Oh, it's incubation? Okay. Yeah. I don't know if there's a name for you know, an animal that takes care of their young and how they take care of them. I don't know if there's a name for that. That's why I was curious. Well, a lot of our lizards don't take care of their young. They just lay their eggs in a nice Mm. place and go off and do their thing. So you're probably aware that 
alligators and crocodiles are the, the famous ones because they don't have sex chromosomes or genes at all. They do it completely by temperature. So if the eggs are incubated at 30 degrees uh, Celsius, they're all females. But if you take the same eggs and incubate them at 33 degrees Celsius, they're all males. Yeah, where there's a phenomena where if you change the temperatures just right, they go for a time being males and then you can convert them back into females, but they'll be a bit different than if they just straight went for, you know, being a female. Is that the case with these lizards? No, not, that's not usually the way they do it. They usually make the decision and stick to it. So there are quite a lot of fish who that do change their sex as adults. Um, some of them do it quite regularly. You know, some fish start off all being females and then when they get big enough, they become males or one of them becomes a male. And there are other fish that do the opposite. They start off as males and when they get big enough, they all become female. So that's the thing that I've had a little bit of experience with because uh, we looked at the genes that were active during that transition phase. And that was fascinating. We particularly, my favorite fish is the blue wrasse. And it's only the male that's blue. The females are sort of dainty, little demure, golden things. But there's a harem that is run by a male that's bigger and has a blue head. But the really neat thing is that if you remove that male from a tank, uh, the biggest female becomes male. And it takes 10 days uh, and she becomes a uh, she changes her behavior in minutes and her color in hours. And by 10 days, her ovary has disappeared and been replaced by a testis that makes sperm. So she's now a fertile male. And that's an extraordinary conversion of male, of female to male. And we've looked at the genes that have been active at the beginning and the middle and the end of that transition phase. Yeah, no, that's really interesting that that happens. That's crazy. I mean, if you compare, though, a female that stays that way and a male that stays that way, how are they different from these ones that, that change? Is there any difference? Can you tell? Well, that's one thing we're, we're looking at in our model because we have in our model, which is called the central beard dragon. It's a beautiful little creature. It's an Australian dragon lizard. It's quite small, but it's got all these points and horns and, and green pointy scales. So it's quite a, a dragon-like little creature but it's very friendly it'll sit on your shoulder and won't do anything until it sees a food source then it goes quite mad until it's cleaned up the food source and it resumes its pose so we've studied that species for quite a few years I do this work in collaboration with a, a group of ecologists and molecular biologists at the University of Canberra and it's been very instructive because it has sex chromosomes, perfectly reasonable sex chromosomes, and we think we know the gene that actually turns on maleness. But And you get about half males, half females from across at a normal sort of temperature. But at high temperatures, they're all females. And because we have markers, we can tell what their sex chromosomes are. So half these females are normal females. They have the normal female sex chromosome constitution. But the other half should have been males, but at the higher temperature they develop as females. And so we have two pathways of becoming female and we can compare the genes that are on and off during the development of females in these two quite different ways. 
So that's been really a wonderful system to study. Well, what happens in any in a particular breeding season if it's unseasonably warm or cold? Good what happens question. to the populations? Good question, because what we found is in the region of the desert where these guys live, it's been getting steadily hotter for 10 years. And what we find is that the uh, proportion of females that should be males, their sex-reversed females, has gone up from 6% to 26% of the population. And so if it gets a lot warmer, there won't be any males at all. And as you could imagine, that's not going to be very good for the population of, of dragons. And so we didn't really worry too much about this species because it has sex chromosomes. We thought, oh, well, it doesn't matter if it's hot or cold, but it does matter. And so it's going to be at risk if the world gets much warmer. And it turns out that that's actually not that uncommon. There are other species that sex reverse at a higher or a lower temperature. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So um, has anyone observed the, the composition of the population changing? You said like the last 10 years have been hotter than normal. Has this changed the composition of the population or any other characteristics about it? Well, we've been sampling the population over that 10 years, and there's been a steady rise in the number of females that should be males, sex-reverse females. They've gone up, as I mentioned, from 6% of the population to 26% of the population, sex-reverse females. So if it gets much hotter, it'll probably get up even higher, and we might end up with no males at all. Well, what happens when a sex-reverse female breeds with a male? What does the well, progeny that, look like? Is it any different? That was one thing we really didn't know and th thought it'd be very interesting to see if these guys will breed. And, yes, it turns out that the, uh, the females with the male sex chromosomes, they breed perfectly well. In fact, they lay more eggs and the eggs have a better hatch rate. So they do really well and their progeny does really well too. But because uh, the sex chromosomes of the dragon, they're like bird sex chromosomes. So there's the male has two copies of a big gene-rich chromosome we call the Z chromosome. Well, you'd call it Z the Z chromosome, and the female has just one copy of the Z chromosome and another chromosome, which we call the W chromosome, which is, is quite a bit different. So we can see that these sex-reverse females with two Z chromosomes who should be male, they develop as females, they mate as females, they lay eggs, and all their progeny has two Z chromosomes like a male should. But their sex is completely dependent on the temperature. So I, I think nobody could believe this, that in one generation, we were able to change the whole sex determining system from genes and chromosomes to temperature. 
And we we're quite shocked because this wasn't supposed to happen, certainly wasn't supposed to happen in one generation so easily. And that's why we say, well, in reptiles, you get a lot of changes in the way sex is determined. What about the, the organs involved in creating and laying eggs? I mean, you know, so if a female changes to a male, you've got to be able to mate. You have to be able to also, uh, or vice versa, sorry, you have to be able to carry the, the eggs. So, again, these sex reversals only happen one way. So the equipment's still there to, to lay the eggs or do they happen two uh, ways? Well, all the development of the gonads, so it's the gonads that make either sperm or eggs. And so the decision about whether an animal is going to develop into a male or a female is actually a decision about whether a, a, a little sliver of cells is going to become either a testis or an ovary. So it's a very unique situation in which uh, one um, group of cells becomes either one thing, that's a testis, that makes sperm, or a completely different organ, an ovary, that makes eggs. So that decision is made very early when the egg is forming an embryo. And once it's made, it doesn't change. This is in reptiles. I don't know of any reptile that actually changes sex once it's been hatched. So it makes a decision and it sticks to it. So the organ that makes the eggs is the ovary, and that's a very complex organ, but it's made by a whole series of genes, and these genes have a program. It's quite a complicated program in which the organ develops while the egg is incubating and then the adult has an ovary that makes eggs and the female will lay eggs. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Has anyone tried to breed a line of, you know, three, four, five generations of, you know, using only sex-diverse females to see what happens? Well, that's what we've been doing over the last five or six years and we seem to have a population that has no W chromosome. The W chromosome is what designates a female. So we have a whole population of lizards with no W chromosome and they do it like alligators now, completely by temperature. You know, if, if it's hot, uh, they're all female. If it's cold, they're all male. So well, what we'll about, um, you know, phenotypically are they different? Is there anything, have you bred them back to the regular population? Like what's different about them? They're different in all sorts of fairly subtle ways. The, the sex reverse females are a bit bigger. They're a little bit bolder. So they're a little bit more male-like. And we're at the moment studying exactly how these changes, how these differences play out in behavior. What we don't know is how they behave in the wild. Because if they're bigger and stronger and they lay more eggs and their eggs uh, hatch better, you'd think that they'd actually completely overtake the normal females, but they don't seem to have done that. So we wonder that if in the wild, why are they not more successful? Well, maybe the males don't like them so much. They're a bit bold and brassy. Maybe the males don't breed with them as well. So there's lots of things that we'd like to know about the behaviour of these sex-reverse females in the wild. This project has got all sorts of fascinating overtones, both in behaviour and ecology. So we have a team of, of people who are looking at the way these dragons behave in the wild and what's happening to the populations in the wild. But we also are doing a, a lot of molecular genetics work on them. The whole question about how temperature works 
to make alligators male or female has been uh, explored in detail over 50 years, and we still don't know how it happens. So we think our system, because it's flexible and there are two ways of making females, we have a very good chance of figuring out what temperature does, you know, how does temperature convert the, repress the genes that would make the embryo male, and exactly what genes does temperature interact with, and there's a whole lot riding on this, a whole lot of, you probably know, you've probably heard about epigenetics. This is a concept that right. the, a lot of genes uh, are sensitive to the environment. So temperature is the big one, certainly for reptiles. And we'd like to know, what does temperature do? Does it flick a switch somewhere? What is the switch? We think we have a pretty good idea of the group of molecules that are being switched. They're called epigenetic modifiers and they're enzymes that will put little chemical groups onto DNA or onto proteins to turn genes on and off. It's a very deep question and it's at at the core of questions like how do our genes make us human? So if we knew how dragon genes make them a dragon, we'd be in better shape to uh, answer the questions about how human genes make us human. Yeah, quick question. Is it a a specific temperature at which this transition occurs or is it a range? And if it's a specific or a narrow range? It's a very narrow range. It's an extremely narrow range for alligators. You know, in a couple of degrees, you go from all males to all females. And in our dragons, again, it's a very narrow range, just a couple of degrees between being all male and being all female. So something must really flick a switch. Yeah. Have you, have you tried to incubate where you fluctuate up and down, up and down within the range a or lot just of- inside it, just outside of it? A lot of people have done that sort of experiment and that shows us that the action is all in a couple of weeks of the incubation of the egg. Very, very early before the gonad has really formed, it depends on the temperature right then. So you can be hotter or colder earlier or later and that won't make a difference, but the switch is thrown at a particular stage. So a lot of people have done experiments like that over many, many years. They're called temperature shift experiments and they're very cute. I love them. So uh, people have tried to stay like, have they tried to stay like maybe a half a degree below the range or like a quarter degree above it? And can they get, can they find like the exact temperature? Is there um, a way to get close to that that border? Uh, you can do very detailed experiments and we have done it around what we call the pivotal point. That is uh, the temperature above which you become female. There's a bit of variation so that, you know, some eggs will convert a little bit cooler than others. And so you're never going to get a precise, you know, 34.85 or anything like that, because there'll be some eggs that convert a little lower and some that convert a little higher. So there's always going to be variation. And one thing I would really like to know is, can you select a line of dragons that is more resistant to temperature or less resistant to temperature? And those experiments are ongoing now. 
So you can see the temperature sensitivity is a really big question. It's been looked at in alligators and turtles over 40, 50 years. But I think we now have a molecular biology and particularly we now have the sequences, the DNA sequences of the lizard. And we can now start asking questions about, you know, what genes actually do the job. And of course, it's um, genomics that is helping us look at sex, how sex is determined, not just in our lizards, which are really fascinating, but we've done a lot of work in, in platypuses and kangaroos, and we now have so much data. It's just changed everything. So what are some things you're looking to study over the next couple of years in relation to the dragons? Well, the dragons is just one project that I'm involved in. And what we want to find out is exactly what is the switch which is thrown by temperature? How do they determine sex at a normal sort of temperature? What is the sex determining gene? How does it interact with other genes? We know that there's a sex determining gene. You've probably heard that the sex-determining gene in humans is called SRY. It's a gene on the Y chromosome. It was discovered actually by my ex-student, Andrew Sinclair, many, many years ago. But it's taken a long time to figure out how that gene works. That gene kicks into a testis-determining pathway. And so it activates another gene and that activates another gene and another gene and another gene and you end up getting a testis. If that gene isn't there you activate a completely different pathway and you activate female determining gene and you end up with an ovary instead of a testis. So we know that that's the way it occurs in humans, but it's taken 40 years to figure out some of the details. So we know that sex determining pathway is probably very similar in dragons, kangaroos, platypus and humans. So we know a lot of the genes that will do this transformation and make a line of cells into a testis or into an ovary. And so we have a lot of candidate genes and what we want to do is find out how they interact with the environment and how they interact with each other. So I'm involved also in projects of the platypus, which is a fascinating Australian animal and does sex determination in a very unusual way. I've done a lot of work on marsupial mammals, which share the same sex determining gene with humans. And presumably it works in much the same sort of way. A lot of my work has been done not just looking at how genes interact with each other, but how they specify sex chromosomes. So sex chromosomes have been really the common factor in my whole research life. I started working on sex chromosomes in kangaroos as it happened as an undergraduate back in the University of Adelaide in the 60s. And that whole field has undergone all sorts of transformations. You know, first of all, we could just look down the microscope and see sex chromosomes. Then we started being able to look at particular genes on sex chromosomes. And we looked at the way sex chromosomes change and behave. And I've become very interested in how sex chromosomes evolve because they are very weird chromosomes. They're not normal chromosomes at all. Interesting. Um, so what about platypuses and uh, you said other marsupials? What, what's interesting about them? They don't change sex. Well, I started temperature, working but... on marsupials a long time ago and I, I did a lot of gene mapping, uh, what genes are on this, the sex chromosomes. Their sex chromosomes 
are a bit like human sex chromosomes. You probably know that in humans and all other uh, placental mammals, females have two copies of a big chromosome with lots of genes on it called the X chromosome. Males have only got one X chromosome and they've got this pathetic little chromosome called the Y chromosome, which is the male determining chromosome. Everybody wants to know, well, how does it determine maleness? And we now know that that's because it has a gene on it called the SIY gene, which kicks us the testis determining pathway. So we know that's how it happened. But when I looked at sex chromosomes in marsupials, they were actually quite a bit different from human sex chromosomes. They were lacking a whole big chunk of chromosomes. So we were able to show that our sex chromosomes, human sex chromosomes, received um, a whole addition of a great big chunk of another chromosome. And that's become most of our Y chromosome. So, but... Really, marsupials do it pretty much the way humans do it, but their sex chromosomes are quite a bit smaller and probably original. When we started looking at platypuses, that was a shocker. (laughs) First of all, they don't have just two sex chromosomes, X and Y. They have 10. So what you do to find out about sex chromosomes is you look at the chromosomes of a male and you look at the chromosomes of a female, for instance, a human or a kangaroo, and you find that in the female, the chromosomes all pair up. So that makes sense because you get one set of chromosomes from your mum and another set of chromosomes from your dad, and so there should be two of each. But if you look at the male, they all pair up except one pair. And that's the X chromosome. That's why it's called an X chromosome. It's X for unknown. It's got nothing to do with its shape. So there's a single X chromosome and this pathetic little Y chromosome that's hardly got any genes on it. And so that's what we expected when we looked at platypus. And that's not what we found. When we looked at the female chromosomes and the male chromosomes, there are actually 10 chromosomes in the male that didn't have partners. And we thought, well, that's ridiculous. You can't have 10 sex chromosomes, but you can. And we're able to show using very fancy cytology that there are five X chromosomes and five Y chromosomes. And this all happened a long time ago. The sex chromosomes interchange with other chromosomes and they, instead of just pairing up at meiosis, and so half the sperm get an X and half the sperm get a Y, at meiosis, the five X chromosomes end up in one sort of sperm and the five Y chromosomes end up in the other. And that's a really, really weird way to do it. But, you know, evolution isn't fussy as long as it works. That'll be what is selected. So platypuses do things in a very bizarre way. Even more bizarrely, we found when we actually mapped genes and got sequence from the five X and five Y chromosomes, they're not at all like human sex chromosomes or kangaroo sex chromosomes. They're completely different. In fact, they're very similar to chicken sex chromosomes. And it looks like the original system may have been a chicken-like system way back when mammals were very young, 160 million years ago, you may have had a completely different sex system. Then our sex system, our X and Y chromosomes, were probably not born until about 150 million years ago. 
That may sound like a long time, but in evolutionary terms, that's not long at all. So our sex chromosomes are quite young and platypus sex chromosomes are probably much more like the original sex chromosomes. So that dates the beginning of X and Y chromosomes. And uh, when we look at our sex chromosomes, we think, well, they're really weird. <laughs> the X chromosome is quite a decent looking chromosome. It's got about a thousand genes on it that do all kinds of different things. The Y chromosome is full of junk DNA, lots and lots of DNA that doesn't code for proteins. Um, and there's hardly any real genes on it. Only about 27 genes. There may be multiple copies of some, but a lot of these copies don't work. So the Y chromosome is a really weird little chromosome. And so a lot of my career has been spent trying to figure out, well, what happened? You know, why is the Y chromosome so weird? What do you think you're going to be able to figure out in the next, in the next few years? What's, you know, what, what are you on the trail of that uh, you feel like you're getting close to an understanding of? Well, there's a really weird situation that we've known about in platypus for a long time. Uh, I've, I've worked on platypuses since uh, the, the 80s. And, and one of my postdoctoral fellows when I was in Canberra has taken this project to Adelaide. So he's now set up a lab looking at platypuses and their uh, cousins, the echidnas, looking at their chromosomes. Because there's another chromosome that's not a sex chromosome, but it's very special because it's the same chromosome that became our sex chromosome 150 million years ago. So this chromosome is just an ordinary chromosome. It's got nothing to do with sex in platypuses, but it became X and Y chromosomes. So the same genes on it, uh, same genes almost in the same order on that chromosome. And that chromosome in platypuses, although it's not a sex chromosome, it sort of behaves a bit like a sex chromosome. So we want to know, is it a wannabe sex chromosome? Does it have some of the properties that would fit it out for being a sex chromosome? Is that why it became a sex chromosome in the other branch of mammals? Or was it originally a sex chromosome and then it changed its mind? So that's we have a, a grant to look at the chromosomes in platypuses, which is not easy. You can probably imagine they're wild animals and they're iconic so they're, and they're vulnerable, so it's really difficult to get material. But we'd like to know what genes are on this chromosome, how do they work, how do they segregate into sperm and eggs, and what is it about this chromosome either fits it for being becoming a sex chromosome or makes it an X sex chromosome. Hmm. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Well, just Google my name. you get tons of stuff. Okay, uh, that's the best way. I have presence both at the University of Adelaide through the Platypus Project, and that's run by my ex-postdoc, Frank Grusner, or the University of Canberra, where I also have an appointment, and that project is run by my collaborator, Arthur Georges, or at La Trobe. I've got a presence in all those. I, I'm on the Academy website. There's all kinds of stories about my life, if you're interested. I've published autobiographical article in the uh, annual review of um, animal biosciences a couple of years ago. So that's kind of user-friendly report about how my career really started with kangaroos and sex chromosomes and it sort of ended up with epigenetics and how the environment can influence 
genes. So I've sort of come full circle because I actually started off looking at sex chromosomes from the point of view of how does one sex chromosome become inactive in females? And I've ended up really looking at the same sorts of questions pertaining to how sex chromosomes determine sex. So it's been a very satisfying closure to my career. Okay, well, very good. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.